Well, as Nick said, thank you so much for every single person being here, and I really feel humbled and really privileged to have the opportunity to share with you this evening. And I'm just so grateful for worship and for every heart that we worship, because it sets an atmosphere in which learning can take place and receiving and, and impartation can take place. So thank you for it. Thank you for participation wholeheartedly. And really want to challenge you um, this weekend to, to not lose the sight of your expectation and goal for this time. You've come here with having sacrificed, having done things, but come with a dream and keep that dream and let it build and, and really invest into it. If we're intentional, God has, and I believe every one of us will leave this place ministered to. Right, so the title of my message is, Who is Jesus to You? So all of us have got some idea of who Jesus is, which you can, but, but who is he to you? That's really the question that I'm asking this evening. And I, I believe that we started off this year as Red Point Church with an invitation, a fresh new invitation from God to each and every one of us into a close fellowship and partnership with His Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that invitation came to us through Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30, where Jesus is speaking, and He is saying to us, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you will recover your life. I will show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you will find, you will learn to live freely and lightly. Or in a better known version, Jesus says, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you remember that we spoke about the fact that the yoke, yoke is a metaphor for the way of a rabbi, the way that they lived, the way of life of a rabbi, and the way they interpret the scriptures. And so what Jesus is saying here is, let me be your rabbi and take on my way of life, my interpretation of the scriptures. So, and we shared about the whole idea that Jesus' way of life is demonstrated or is lived out in four core practices, which is silence and solitude, which is the drawing aside to be with them, a daily rhythm of that, and extended times periodically. Then of Sabbathing, Sabbath thing, the whole purpose of Sabbath thing is not to put the law before us, but it's actually a blessing, it's a gift. It's to give us an opportunity, a day, a weekly rhythm of stopping and beholding Christ, appreciating his creation, who he is, experiencing his goodness, which is there all the time. We all know Psalm 23, verse 6 says, For surely goodness and mercy will pursue me or follow me, run after me, some translations, every day of my life. But how often do we miss that? Because we just run past it. It's not that the goodness and, and blessings of God is not there. We miss it because we're too much in a hurry. Jesus' way of life is to give us into that rhythm where we can experience those things. Simplicity, 
Simplicity is not getting away of clutter for the sake of not having clutter in your life. It's actually to create room to experience Christ. That's simplicity. And slowing down deliberately, putting yourself in situations where you're forced to slow down. Slow down the pace of life. So it is to create margin so that we can be present to the moment. I mentioned the fact that if there's a secret to having joy in life, it is to actually be present in the moment. That is what it is. It is what Jesus demonstrated. Because being present in the moment, we can experience him and we can be used by him and see his life flow through us to people around. So that's the core practices. Now, it's been about five months since the invitation came. So my question is, how are you doing? How's it been going? Have you managed to put some of these things into place and see them outworked and bless your life? Remember, it's a gift. It's not a set of rules to live by, but it is a gift that God gives us, a secret to unpack and experience the joy that he has come to give us to live in. Philippians is all about joy, but remember, joy is not, you don't find joy in the pursuit of joy. You find joy in the pursuit of Jesus. It's a byproduct of finding Jesus. Now, don't you find it really amazing that when Jesus invites us, the, the attribute of himself that he displays or that he um, reveals to us is his gentleness and humility. Incredible, eh? Not all the others, not his holiness, not any of his other attributes equal to God, but his gentleness and humility. And there is something there to be ministered to each of us if we can get that. That is gentle and humble. I mentioned that he is God, our Trinitarian God, is the only God that has uh, only deity worshipped in the world that has humility as an attribute. And that is why there's perfect harmony within the Trinity, because of humility. That's how we can have unity among us, is through humility. And it's the humility of Jesus that Paul gets lyric about in Philippians when he says, lyrical, is that right word? He says, Philippians 2, verse 6 to 9, it says, Who, being in very nature God, in other words, essential character attributes of God, 100% God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to cling onto and to never let go of, or something to be used for his own advantage. But what did he do? He humbled himself. Not forced into it out of his own free will, out of his perfect submission to the will of the Father in humility. He made himself nothing. How? By taking on the nature of man, and not just any man, that of a servant. In other words, the perfect 100% God, now also 100% man, essential character of man, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. I spoke about morphe, skemos, the two ways of that word. Skemos is the outward appearance of man, meaning that Jesus limited himself. He didn't only become fully human in our attributes, but he limited himself to a physical body and everything that that entails and what it made for him. Can you imagine that? The one that is immortal, infinite, uncreated, limits himself to a created body. It's going to decay because of the effect of sin. Not his sin, but what humans are affected to. He had to go through the cross experiencing everything, every blow like a human would have. He limited himself to that, to that physical form. Did not take his godly attributes for his own advantage to be used in this time. Didn't lose it, but didn't use it. That's the sign of humility. He said he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, in humility, 
fully surrendered to the will of the Father and the way of the Father through which he was to fulfill that will. And because of that, God exalted him to the highest place, placed him in the right hand of the Father. That's what it is. He is seated at the right hand of the Father above every other and given him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and carries on. So my question is to you, in these five months or however long you've learned about this idea of being yoked together with Jesus, how much have you studied your yoke fellow and gotten to know him? Because the whole purpose of being yoked together, if you have oxen to fulfill a task, to get it done, they'll put a new, a new ox next to an old-timer, and that the young ox, ox needs to do is to learn from the old-timer, needs to learn the rhythms of it. As long as he does his own thing, he doesn't have the benefit of the strength of the one next to him. But when he gets into rhythm with the experienced ox, the strength of that ox becomes his, and they can fulfill the task so much better. So Jesus invited us to be yoked next to him. Not just to continue on the way that you thought he was, but actually really make a study of him, his characteristics, his attributes, his personality, his strength, and let it infuse your life and change it. So I want to ask you, who is Jesus to you? Could you describe him like S.M. Logridge? How would you describe him to someone, especially if you were not to use biblical terms? How would you describe him? This is your best friend to another friend. I think it's a beautiful exercise to do. So let's listen to how Phil Wickham describes him. He says, I see your face in every sunrise. The colors of the morning are inside your eyes. The world awakens in the light of the day. I look up to the sky and say, you're beautiful. I see your power in the moonlit night where planets are in motion and galaxies are bright. We are amazed at the light of the stars. It's all proclaiming who you are. You're beautiful. I see you there hanging on a tree. You bled and then you died and then you rose again for me. Now you are sitting on your heavenly throne and soon we will be coming home. You're beautiful. When we arrive at eternity's shore, where death is just a memory and tears are no more, we'll enter in as the wedding bells ring. Your bride will come together and we'll sing. You're beautiful. Oh, you're beautiful. I see your face. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. I see your face. You're beautiful. So when you turn and see Jesus, who do you see? Which Jesus do you see? I love how Phil describes from nature, seeing him, being in awe of his creation, which reflects the essence of who he is. He goes through to seeing him as the Redeemer, the one on the cross. But it doesn't stay there. He sees him as a resurrected, victorious king in eternity. And he sees himself as part of the bride meeting their bridegroom. So from, from majesty to intimacy, all these pictures of who Jesus is and the response that it brings from him. You're beautiful. 
you're beautiful. On the Isle of Patmos, when John was in exile there, he describes the one he sees. It's in Revelations 1, verse 12 to 18. He says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. That is a picture for the perfect church, seven um, number of completion and perfection, wholeness. So that's the whole redeemed body of Christ. And he sees Jesus there. I see, I told, and saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. So Jesus is amongst his people in his church. And what is he wearing? He's wearing his priestly robes, which is a picture of his work clothes. So Jesus is at work right now, interceding for us. He forever is. He's at work moving amongst his people, ministering. He's here this weekend to minister to you and to me and to give us an experience of him. So he said, I see him, he is dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. That's a picture of the ancient of days. It's a personification of wisdom, ultimate wisdom. That is him. He is your counselor if you want him. And his eyes were like blazing fire. Imagine that. Eyes blazing fire looking into your inner recesses of your being with love and passion, evoking response from you. You, you, you captivated. Your gaze is held. It cannot stray from anywhere to anywhere. It's fixed, transfixed on him because his eyes are looking right into your inner being. His feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. Picture of steadfastness. Strength immovable, solid foundation upon which you can build your life, dependable. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. It was loud, it was distinct. It actually would drown out every other noise if you draw near. That's rushing waters. Listening to it, it, it produces, it evokes like emotion inside of you. It produces energy and life and the source of, of, of life that would call you into it. Even though it looks awesome you want to, or fearful, you just want to get in there with water. That's what it does. Rushing waters. In his right hand, it held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, a picture of absolute authority over the whole universe. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Imagine that. Try to look into the sun. You can't look very long, and we are a trillion miles away. Jesus' face shining with the brilliance of the sun. He's right there. It's actually impossible to stand in it, but for Jesus, it enables us to do so. When we're in him, we can see it, we can gaze into it. It's blinding purity, holiness, powerful, once again, life-giving, all-consuming. And John says, when I saw him, when I saw him. Remember, John is the one who has seen to have had the closest personal relationship with Jesus, probably outside of Mary, his mother. That John, when he sees Jesus, what is his response? Hey, buddy, I've missed you. How are you, my homeboy? <laughs> what happened? I fell at his feet as though dead. 
absolute awe, adoration, totally captivated, laughless, see this glorious risen Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He placed his right hand upon him. Beautiful picture. Picture of favor. Picture of, I have made you righteous. Picture you are worthy to be in my presence. Picture of full acceptance, full forgiveness. Full embrace. And what does he say? Do not be afraid. As Kati said on Sunday, command most repeated in all the scripture. That's what synonyms are about 365 times. One for every day of the week, of the year. Do not be afraid. And why not? Because I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. But behold, I am alive. Behold means do you comprehend this? I was dead because of your sins, but I'm no longer dead. I'm alive, and therefore you can be alive. I paid the full penalty for your sin, the full price, and the Father accepted it. That's why I'm alive, and I live forevermore. And what do I do? I hold the keys of death and Hades. Death and Hades is the metaphor, the pinnacle of fear. It's death and Hades. Jesus has those keys. We have got no need to be afraid. Nothing, no system in the world, no circumstance, no uh, authority, nothing can take you out of his hand and out of his purposes for your life. You have no need to be afraid if you see this Jesus. So my question again, who is Jesus to you? I'd like you to do a little exercise. If you were, if you were to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10... One being, I barely know him, to ten being, I know him as well as he can be known this side of eternity. Where would you score yourself? Be honest, don't belittle or degrade yourself. Just give yourself a score. Write it down or just in your mind. I think it's a good exercise to do. And I don't think any of us are going to give ourselves a ten, because not even Paul did that, as you'll see just now. Uh, another passage, but, but it is good. But my next question is, sorry. How desperately do you want to know him better? What are you prepared to lay down to get to know him better? Paul says, Philippians 3 verse 7 onwards, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost. For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And we know that that is not gaining Christ in terms of salvation. He didn't question his salvation. He knows, he said, it's the knowledge of him that he's talking about. Verse 10 says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Remember, it's not salvation. What he is speaking about is that 
in his partnership and being yoked together with Jesus, doing life with Jesus through its ups and downs, through its heartaches and celebrations, through its trials and his, his victories. That is how you partner with Jesus. The resurrection power of Jesus becomes manifest in your life and lived out in your life. That's why he wants to partner with Jesus. He says he wants to be yoked with him so that he can experience that life-giving power as, as in the resurrection in his own body. Verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect. So those, we can read it in different ways, but I believe that this is part of what Paul is saying. He's saying that which he hasn't obtained yet is the knowing of Jesus. But he's not going to be held back by anything else. He's going to leave it all behind to strive towards that, for which, to take a hold of that. He says, but I press on to take a hold of that for which Christ took a hold of me for. It is the knowing of him. Jesus himself said, to know me is eternal life. It is to know him that Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit. He will show us everything, teach us everything Jesus said. He will lead us to Jesus. It's the knowing of him. And Paul says, I haven't obtained it yet, but I'm going to do everything in my power to, do, to learn and to get, know him as best as I possibly can. So how desperately do you want to know him more? And what are you prepared to do to get to know him more? So just to have a, two little examples of the how that I've experienced in my life of how it helps or what we can do. So one of the ways I believe that we get to know Jesus better, of course we would say read the scriptures, but I think you've got to read the scriptures intentionally looking for him. He is to be found on every page of the Bible. You will find him if you look for him. In the most obscure story, he'll be there if you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal him to you. And, the, and who he is will just continue to grow as you read every page of scripture if you come with that intentionality and attitude. And he will just explode your mind. Secondly, I believe that we can discover much of who Jesus is through actually living ourselves into the text. Especially if you, if you picture the New Testament. It's easier to relate to the New Testament than the Old. But put yourself in the text. Live yourself into it. Read about the background. See what the situation is. And imagine if you were there looking at the face of Jesus while he's ministering or doing things. And, and there will be a whole new experience of who he is. So just two examples. Luke 4. Luke 4 says, and Luke 4, I'm going to read from verse 14 if you want to go there, but I'll just give you the background quickly. It is where Jesus has started his ministry. So he's moved around Galilee for a bit now. He's had the miracle in Canaan of water into wine. So the rumors have started spreading about who he is. And remember that this is in the backdrop of thousands of years of expecting Jesus to come. From Genesis, it was started to be prophesied already, but especially after David's kingdoms and with Saul and the, I mean Samuel and the collapse sort of of Israel, there's been this oppression over Israel constantly, some of those years and down and that whole thing, but, but this expectation of the Messiah to come has grown and there's a specific connotation to it that every patriotic Jew has expected this Messiah to be. And it is built and shaped out of prophecies like Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 3, that reads, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness, uh, the release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That's the stuff that these Jewish boys and zealots and that grew up on. That's what inspired them and made them all excited. And so they, they, they were waiting for this Messiah. And then remember, 400 years, no prophecies, nothing, until Jesus appears, starts having his ministry. So you can imagine the excitement growing. You can imagine how, I can imagine how those zealots were taking out their spears and daggers from under the beds or wherever they're hiding them and getting them ready for the day when Jesus would speak the word and they'll be there to, to follow him in this revolt and overthrow Roman oppression. As a matter of fact, I think even John the Baptist had something of that inside of him. That's why he so boldly and fearlessly told off the king, Herod, and all that, because he knew Jesus is right here. He's baptized him. He's going to come. So it's just a matter of time, and Rome will be overthrown. So it doesn't need to be afraid. But what happens here, friends? Have you read that already, what I was saying? So this, that's the scene. So I'll pick it up there, Luke 4, verse 18. Or I'll just say, from 16, it says, He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So I can imagine rumors going, is he going to read Isaiah 61? That's what they're waiting for. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, and he starts... The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the hero of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the tenant, and sat down. I think if I was Simon Zealot there, I would have said, Hey, Jesus, you can't put the scroll down yet. There's another line to be read there. What is that line? The day of vengeance of our Lord. Because that means the powerful overthrow of the empire. But that prophecy was not for that time. So you can imagine the disappointment that was in their hearts. As I said, I think even in John's heart. And that's why he sent a message at one point while he was in prison there and saying, Are you the one? I mean, John baptized him. Are you the one? Or should we expect another? Because this side of the prophecy is not being fulfilled. So my point here, friends, is that we can come to the Scriptures and to Jesus and have an incorrect picture of who Jesus is. A picture of who Jesus is that is formed by whatever. Your past, things that you've learned as a child, maybe even in Sunday school, had a wrong understanding of what was said, all these things. So when we come to the Scriptures, we've got to come with humility. We've got to come with a teachable spirit. You've got to come with a desire to discover the real Jesus. You can be so caught up in your estimation of who you should be, influenced, we could say, things like prosperity theology or whatever it is, so locked into that that you can actually miss the real Jesus visiting you and ministering to you. And the way we can be sure of that and that help us is to be part of a Christian community, part of a church where... There are different voices coming in. That we don't get to go off on tangents and all these kind of things. But in our hearts, there's got to be a humility with which it comes to the Scripture and the authority of His Word. And that is the highest authority and you let it be shaped by Him and 
always in dependence on the Holy Spirit to teach you, daily teach you, show you, are there excesses or anything in my life that I need to trim off and be challenged by things. Read different authors, not just one favorite author, and get the true picture of who Jesus is. Got that? Okay, another example is John 8. In John 8, we find the story of the lady caught in the act of adultery that the Pharisees brings to Jesus. Jesus is actually teaching in the, in the temple courts. They drag the woman into the temple courts. I'll read it quick. It says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to, in, to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So in the scene, Pharisees come. They are looking at Jesus through eyes of hatred. They hate him because he is threatening their position, their, their way of domineering and dominating and controlling society and their meritorious righteousness that is elevated all the time. So they started hating him because they refused to see him for who he truly is. And we were prepared to have their way and interpretations challenged by it. So they see him out of that, and they wanted to get this woman exposed, humiliated, and actually killed. And they knew that Jesus is going to probably want to forgive her, and they knew that would be blasphemy in their eyes, and so they wanted to accuse him. That's their purpose. So they wanted to just condemn him, get rid of him, defame him, and reinstate this, their own meritorious righteousness in front of everybody. They couldn't see the real Jesus. But this woman, what was her lenses? When she looked at Jesus, how did she see him? Who did she see? She saw the son of the father. She saw love, grace, mercy, compassion. She saw gentleness and humility personified. She saw her saviour, the one who had every right to actually be throwing the stone, but who forgave her instead, who took on her filthy rag and gave her his perfect, beautiful, righteous robe to dress herself in. The one who empowered her, set her free from her sin and the effects thereof and the slavery to it, and gave her the ability to turn her back on those things which it was impossible to do before in order to follow him. 
live life with him. So the same scenario, but very different lenses through which people looked at Jesus and saw Jesus. So I believe our question to us is, who is Jesus to you? Who do you see when you look at him? Is he just baby born in a manger? The one who comes to give you everything that you ask for in his name, make life easy for you? Or is he more? Is he the one that calls you into an extraordinary adventure that will cost you absolutely everything, your very life? But there's no better place to be than to be yoked next to him. Who do you see? And who do I see? Amen. Toza says, it comes to mind when we think about God as the most important thing about us. And I think we've got an opportunity this weekend to actually have that influenced and shaped again by just a true reflection or a, a reflection on who Jesus is. So I'd really like to leave you with this challenge. And that is to sometime between now, this evening, and tomorrow morning when we actually come together for breakfast, why don't you take some time out and... And, and just start this, what I would call a working document of who Jesus is to you. Write a full-scale paper or whatever. Just, just ponder upon him. Think of the stories and scripture and what of himself is he exposed to you there. And let it grow within you. And when you come to the end of your half hour, hour that you spend, don't put a full stop. Put a comma there. Because there's more to be experienced and groan of him, things that maybe should be typexed out and others put in or whatever. <laughs> Start a working document and let it grow within your life. Keep it. Write it in a journal that you'll carry with you through the years and keep adding to it and expounding on it. And let this Jesus captivate your gaze, captivate everything about you because in him we will be sustained. In him we will not be people that start high and peter out. We will run the race all the way to the end if you can continue to see and continue to have your view of him just elevated, escalated, and grown. Amen.